2 Corinthians 5 again. And uh, the, the whole passage is 2 Corinthians 5 verses um, 11 through chapter 6 verse 2. Wow, you guys are really far away. I'm gonna... I, I, I didn't hear you. Sorry. That's all right. And as people come in, if they come in and sit up here, I'll scoot back. So, um, but anyway, first or Second Corinthians, excuse me, chapter five. We started last week in verse eleven and read through chapter six, verse two. Uh, today we're going to pick it up in verse sixteen, and uh, we'll go ahead and read that again through. Chapter 6, verse 2. I'll give you a second just to, uh, to turn there if you're not there already. But the title this morning is, is Reconciliation. Uh, and of course, this is part two of what's probably going to be a three-part um, study on this particular passage. And uh, I'll open in prayer this morning. Lord, G Lord, Father, I thank you for today again. I thank you for your blessings. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of creation. And Lord, just the evidence of you that we see everywhere. And Lord, the, the grace that comes when we obey through trials. And Lord, the, the evidence of faith that comes out of that as well as an example to others. And I just pray that you help us today to understand uh, the knowledge of your word and to continue to obey it, to apply it to our lives. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 16, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as Though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. So as a result of, of Paul's conversion, he no longer evaluates people on the, um, on the, on the basis of the externals, okay? Um, and he implies that his opponents, uh, and to a certain extent, those influenced by his opponents did just that. And so... At one time, this was true of Paul also, because we know that uh, in Acts we read, and also in a number of other passages we'll look at in a few minutes, that he regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. So in Acts 7, if we turn there, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 59, and we read through Acts chapter 8, verse 1, just a couple of verses. 
This is the, the description of when we first hear of Paul or, or Saul, as he's named here, um, and what he's doing to Christians uh, in the name of religion. So in verse 50, 59 of Acts chapter 7, he says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. So then if we turn to Acts 22, Acts 22, of course, this is after his conversion. Uh, and he's being persecuted himself. And we read verses 2 through 5. He says, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I stuttered, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. And as a high priest, if we just read the next verse, as a high priest and all of the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And so <coughs> the, the picture that Paul is painting here um, if we go back to the verses that we finished with last week, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. This is, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. And he died for all that, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but him who died for them and was raised again. And so the, the, the picture, the element that he's pointing to is the unconditional love of Christ. So I'm going to ask a question. Uh, of a couple of you, and I'll just tell you right now, this was kind of staged a little bit, but you'll be able to relate to it um, when you see where I'm going with this. So I asked Brian, I said, uh, when, when you married your wife, what was it or what is it that you, that's caused you to love your wife? Why do you love your wife? And your answer? <laughs> What's that? She's a looker. She's a looker. <laughs> All right, yeah. And, and to be truthful, all of us are probably, that's, a, that's usually the first thing that we notice is the appearance of the one, you know, that we're attracted to. So, okay, so her personality and all that. And, and so Sherry, what would you say about the same question? Um, yeah. so Why do you love Brian? Okay, so you guys know, they know the right answer to these questions, so I kind of staged it a little bit. All right, so it's grown. So what was it initially, say when you got married, um, what were the things that caused you to love him?
Yeah. Right. So if you. Yeah. So that was okay. Yeah, mom and dad will be a mom will pr- approve of this one. Right. <laughs> we know how to convince our parents to get what we want. We we know the questions to ask and how to answer them. So, and and the reason why I bring this question up, this isn't actually a a, a message about marriage, but the element of a godly marriage is actually in there, and so I it's. It's easy to make the picture of what Paul is, is trying to describe. And so if you ever listen to um, or watch on YouTube or anything like that, if you watch the people that are getting married that have written their own vows, oftentimes it is they do this for me or they do this to me. And I love them because of that. And so... The next question I want to ask, and Tracy and I read this in a book this week um, as we were reading some things about Christ and godly love. If those things went away, would you still love each other? Today or then? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anytime. Right. So, so when you look at a lot of the di- divorce rate and the separation rate and those kind of things, often it's because our love is based on conditions it's based on appearances well what if she doesn't look as good 20 years from now as she did when you got married uh what if he doesn't take as good a care of you 20 years from now as he did you know when he's as soon as he got from home from work he went home showered and gassed up his car and over to my house or out or we were doing something we were together constantly what if that passion doesn't seem like it's as strong as what it once was and I'm not talking about if it's a situation, you know, where there's, um, where there's mistreatment, abuse, that kind of thing. That, that's a different story because that's, that's completely ungodly and, and there are grounds for uh, removals from those situations. But when we're, when we're looking at love for our spouse and we look at Ephesians 5 and how it's described, once the conditions of our love are gone... I asked the question again, and I know they know the answer, so why do you love her? Right. So when you said your vows, it was probably more like this, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And so when there is sickness and, or there is poor situations, severe to where it's severe those vows are promises that you made before god and and when there's nothing else that draws you to that person the very simplest is is god you did this for me and you've given that as the example to me to do for her or for her to do for you and that's what is being described here is christ's unconditional love for us laying down his life for us who does God love? All of us. Does it matter if you decide one day to give your life to him or you don't? Does that change his, that doesn't, that doesn't change his love and it doesn't change what he has already done and will continue to offer regardless. And so Paul is describing, he says, I used to look at Jesus from a worldly point of view. He used, used to look at Jesus Christ as what does he do for me and what does he want me to do for him 
And when he received the message of the gospel on the road to Damascus, he realized, wow, even though I'm killing the people that love him, he still loves me. And, and that element there is draws, draws Paul in to, to not regard any person anymore from a worldly point of view, but he looks at every individual and says, what does Jesus want me to do? And what does Jesus want to do in this person's life? And that brings a, a just a, when, when he describes the gospel message, it just brings clarity to what he wants that person to know. He wants that person to understand Christ's unconditional love. So if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 9, and as you turn there, that's one of the things that I struggled with for a little while is understanding unconditional love. Um, because conditional love, we naturally compare it to the greatest love phileo or eros love that we've ever experienced on earth. And there's nothing like it. You cannot find anything like it except from someone who is 100% completely following the Lord Jesus Christ. And even then, when you do experience it, you question it. You go, okay, what's their angle? What's their motive? What do they want? Out of th they want something from me. That's why they're treating me like this. I don't deserve to be treated that good. You know? And so there's also automatically, in, unless we know Christ already, there's a little apprehension about that kind of love coming from somebody else. And it's difficult to receive that sometimes. So 1 Corinthians 15, 9 I'm not, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Again, Paul describing the kind of things that he did and, and he's exercising humility. And we see that again when he describes himself in Galatians chapter 1 in verses 11 through 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Um, and we can even read a couple more about his testimony. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. And he goes on to say how he went uh, into Arabia, he went into the wilderness, spent three years with Jesus one-on-one, -on -one, Instruct, being instructed and being taught. Um, and I picture that as being a, even more intense instruction than what the disciples received. Uh, because the disciples, I mean, they walked and they, they saw him interact with people. And sometimes it was quiet, sometimes it was rest. I picture Paul being just one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. And Jesus was giving him just loads of intense instructions um, and there's points in Paul's writings where he said, there are some things that, I'm, that I saw that I'm unable to talk about, that I can't even tell you about, 
but God did this for him so that he would be able to persevere through uh, the persecutions. He did. He, he got to see. Oh, yeah, yeah. So back in 2 Corinthians 5, um, if we look at verses 17 through 19, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So no one is more able um, to reflect on this transformation than Paul. I just realized I didn't finish that verse. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul is, is saying, you know, he's, he's transferring all of that onto every person who calls himself a follower of Christ. Yes. Yeah, there has to be testimony going forward. And so over the years, it's easy to see how the testimony about Christ has gradually kind of diminished a little bit. Um, and that's why it's so important that we continue to go back to the scripture, uh, that we continue, and in, in this is in the positive sense, uh, but we continue to be critical um, of our understanding of the scripture, the scripture and that kind of thing. Um, you know, most people look at being critical uh, as, as, as a negative, um, but the reality is, is, is we can be critical of the scripture and of how we're living our lives. That's basically examining ourselves um, and walking alongside with people, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that is encouraging them to do righteousness and live righteously and to live holy. So um, when Paul, <coughs> who changed from a persecutor of, the, of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ, in Christ is a phrase that Paul used repeatedly in his letters to speak of a believer's spiritual relationship to, the, to Christ. Okay? So in other words, their relationship, they're united. And so this is kind of where the, the marriage relationship, the picture of a godly or God's purpose in marriage comes into play because if you go back to Genesis um, chapter 2, the place where we see in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at chapter 1 as well. Um, helps us understand what it means to be in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Somebody wants to read that. Go ahead. Okay, they become one flesh. So what does that what does that mean? What's that look like? And there's a lot of descriptions that could be used here. <coughs> Let's say that again. Yeah, they're united. So 
does Sherry make any important decisions by herself? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> you had to think about it for a second. It should be a mutual thing. And the more you get to know each other, you know how the other person is going to feel about different decisions. And you understand how they would respond. And you are united in the decisions. So when you have children and uh shay comes to sherry as a 10 year old boy and says hey can i blow something up do you have something i can blow up today and she goes go ask your dad <laughs> right <laughs> so <laughs> in a, so so how do we translate that I know what to say, but I don't want to be the one to say it, so I'm going to let the authority <laughs> say it. And the authority of, and so, Ryan, did you ever send him back to your, and say, go ask your mother? Well, she said to go ask you. And so you know how that's played back and forth. But the truth is, is, is the longer you're together, and the more, you spend, the more time you spend getting to know each other, you know and are in unity in how decisions are made. So in the spiritual realm, being in Christ means the decision is already made in heaven for every obstacle or every trial that we encounter. And it's up to us to get to know Christ more and be in unity. But it's not a, it's not a Lord, this is my idea. What's yours? It's, Lord, whatever you say is true, and that's what I'll do. And so when we read this, <clears throat> the husband and the wife were one, they, in other words, when they answer questions or they seek after God, they seek after God as one who is in unity with each other as well as in unity with God. So when marriage is described in Ephesians 5 of how husbands should love their wives and how wives should submit to their husbands and, and so on and how they should be in unity, the picture is Christ in the church. The picture is Christ in the body of believers. So if we back up just a page or so, Yeah, because, you know, and like I was saying, is there's so many, uh, it's going to be, sorry, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where we're going, but um, it's, it's, there's, there's so many other reasons why people get married other than, I know you're the one that God wants me to be with, so I choose to love you because he loves me and I want to demonstrate that love to you in the same way. I agree. Right. Most of the time. Right. And in most cases, we're attracted to affirmation from other people. You know, so if, if there's. If there's a person, one person, you know, a, a guy says to a woman or vice versa or whatever, and, and it doesn't even have to be that today, I guess. Um, but if there is an attraction and there is something that tickles your ego a little bit, you know, and, and puts you up on a pedestal, that's what we're, tr that's our, we're naturally attracted to those things. Um, those things become pleasing because all of a sudden there's a, a gratification, a pleasure that comes out of that. 
And so the issue is, is that is not an eternal sustainable thing. But the love of Christ is. So doing righteousness, even though sometimes it's extremely difficult because it may be painful, it, it, it may appear as, um, you know, as, a, as just a con to try and get something out of the situation. But the reality is, is if we're loving the way Christ loves, we can speak to each other with compassion, with, con- with kindness, and with truth. So truth done in love, <coughs> there has to be truth for it to actually be love. And if there's an absence of truth, it's not the kind of love that Christ wants for us. And so it's, it's more of a, um, an attraction or a, just a, a drawing too. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals <coughs> and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created uh, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we're made to look, be look, to look like Christ. Is there any sin in the world at this point in time? No, not in mankind there isn't. So... When we go back to 2 Corinthians 5 and he says, I'm going to make you a new creation. He's recreating our soul, our spirit, to look like this. And so when the new creation has come and we stand before God, we stand before him and the blood of Christ on us makes us look like this. Like the original creation that we were created to be like Christ. And so when we read Romans 8, um, 28 through 30, be transformed, or excuse me, let's just turn there because I know I'm going to mess it up. He says, uh, 8, 28 through 30. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So the goal here is to be transformed into the image of Christ. So that when God looks at us, they see the blood of Christ, they see the obedience to Christ, and we are in Christ. Um, and, and that's the transition, that's the, the reconciliation and the conversion that takes place. Um, <clears throat> they're completely united. So if we turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we read verses 15 through 18. Colossians chapter 1. In verses 15 through 18, he says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And as we look at that, um, what he's the, again, what he's describing, him having supremacy or being supreme in our life, uh, the, like I said before, the decisions... Um, that are made they're made in heaven and fulfilled through our obedience when god is given supremacy in our life so have you ever known or understood that god wanted you to do something and you went i don't know if i can do that or uh, have you ever been in a situation where you know that god doesn't want you to do something he wants you to abstain from something and you went but I need that. I want that. Um, and, and I think every single one of us has probably had that argument in our mind with, with the Lord. <laughs> you know, we've, if we're honest, there's always been things that I wanted to continue doing that I used to do that God doesn't want me to do now and vice versa. And so that's the, that's the war that goes on in the spirit realm. But giving God the supremacy is understanding that every decision that we face has already been answered at some point or another in the scripture and all we have to do is find it that's not always easy um, and i think that's why it's important that we walk alongside each other because we learn things from people who know more so i learn things from wayne and from madeline and from jim as you guys do as well and from others um, i learn things even from people who are learning uh, because they're reading through there's a lot of times people will read through wow did you did you catch that no, I didn't. That's cool. You know, that's pretty awesome. And uh, so we can know that the new creation has come because of those decisions. So one more passage to look at on this subject. There's a lot more in the Bible about this subject. But Hebrews uh, chapter 1, and we'll read the first three verses. And he says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So in God's sight, um, redemption is the recreation and the fulfillment of God's purposes in creation, and this takes place in Christ, through whom all things were made. Um, we read Colossians 1.15 already, I believe, and in whom all things are restored or created anew. 
This new creation is brought about by the Holy Spirit, the, who is the agent of regeneration. And we read that in Titus chapter 2. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I don't remember if it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, that we read in, jo- in John 14, I asked the question, what is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to the believer? And Jesus tells his disciples that when the advocate comes, he will remind you and teach you all the things of righteousness that I've already taught you. And it, it wasn't exactly like that, but that was the gist of what he was saying is, is he'll help you understand everything about righteousness that you need to know. And so in Titus 2, verses uh, 11 through 15, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. What are worldly passions? Okay, fleshly things. Give me a for instance. Okay. Okay, those are, those are the big, some of the big things. Um, you know, uh, material possessions, um, sex, whatever you want to name it. Some of the simpler things are, would be when you, and, and you guys are excellent examples for this. Um, if I see a homeless person down in Peru as I'm leaving Walmart with a sign up and the light's red, and I sit there and I, if I don't make eye contact. Okay? Worldly passions means, Lord, don't ask me to do that. I, I have things to do today. I'm busy and I just don't want, you know, I don't want my schedule to be interrupted. Um, <coughs> simple things. I asked a few weeks, or I talk, we talked about a couple weeks ago in men's uh, ministry where, you know, sometimes... Our employers will ask us to work at a uh, uh, on an inconvenient time, you know, and our desire to have double time pay is greater than our desire to know what God wants to say to us today. And so that will change us and we'll allow those kinds of things. Those are those are even the small ways that worldly passions creep in. Um, you mentioned, you know, intimacy. So that's that's one of those ways where marriage becomes a struggle. That's where it becomes a struggle oftentimes um, with unconditional love. You know, because I don't have to tell this group of people that you're not always together on timing and things like that uh, of when those things happen. And so that's that's a that's a difficult. Those are some of the small ways that the worldly passions will creep in and, and will begin to try and justify ungodliness. We'll, try, we'll begin to try and justify things that how we, how we, tro- um, how we are controlled. So <clears throat> to continue on in that sentence, and it says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, continues on, for for, or excuse me, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
it's very easy to lose perspective on that. And I can give you a real simple scenario. Um, if you've lived in this area for 20 years or so, um, there, was a, there was a night where Tracy and I were sitting at home, and uh, it was a Sunday night. I'll never forget it. And we're sitting there, and we're having probably one of the most heated arguments at like 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. Um, that we'd had in a long time and finally we had just both gotten quiet and and we she's laying on the couch I'm sitting on the floor leaning against the couch going Lord how do we fix this and I, I don't I don't claim to have any power or authority over nature but no joke if you lived here in this area you'll remember this an earthquake began you remember that? <laughs> she nodded her head. Like 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night, the house started to shake. And What's that? It was later than that? Okay. Well, either way, my wife and I are sitting in our living room, and the house starts to shake. And she looks at me, and she goes, what was that? <laughs> and he, I was being a smart aleck, of course, as I usually am. I said, that was an earthquake. And, and so we walked outside. We could hear the neighbor's cows across the street just go, you know, they're going nuts. And uh, I go upstairs and I check and our kids are asleep in their beds and, uh, and everything. They didn't even hear it. They didn't feel it. And I was like, wow, okay. Some things, our cabinet doors opened in the, in the kitchen and, and that kind of thing. I, and I just kind of walked around and I said, God's telling us to knock it off. <laughs> That's what I said. But the point is, is, is sometimes our trials need a little perspective. Sometimes our trials need God to show us, hey, pay attention. We're talking about eternity here. And what you're dealing with, even, yes, it is important. It doesn't mean that it's not unimportant. But I can become very selfish in my trial and say, I need this. I need you to pay attention to my needs. God doesn't say that anywhere. He says, so put other people's needs ahead of yourself. Even if you're in the deepest trial, and, and, and we read about Paul's trials, we can, we can read through all of the things that he went through or a number of the things that he went through in his life. Last week we mentioned how he was killed, drug outside the city, and he got up and went back in the city, and they, people said, you're crazy. You're nuts. But the reality is, is when we have that perspective, we do live righteously we do put worldly passions aside we will live holy as we allow him to teach us to do those things so then if we just go to the next chapter in titus uh, chapter 3 verses 3 through 8 paul doesn't exclude himself right off the bat he says at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, excuse me, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everything. So he's saying that <clears throat> there's nothing you can do. This is what he's describing. He's describing Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, just in a, in a different way. Um, he's saying it's only through the grace of Jesus, grace of God that you are saved. It's nothing you can do to save yourself, but because grace has come and you are saved, devote yourselves to doing what is good. Devote yourself to understanding that Jesus Christ is coming and the reward is going to be for the things that we do that have spiritual, uh, spiritual benefits. Right. And he describes it. He, what he describes is if you're, if you're looking for credit, you've got your reward now instead of God's reward. So in other words, um, the affirmation that you look for on earth says is telling God, I think I prefer my attaboy from, from Wayne and from Nico and, and Larry rather than from God. <laughs> right, right. And so uh, Jesus describes in the Gospels, he says, don't let your right hand, your right hand shouldn't let your left hand know what it's doing. Um, so in other words, you should just do the good. Um, if somebody happens to see it, the Old Testament, I think it's in Proverbs, says um, to let others speak well of you. You know, that, uh, you know, if somebody happens to see you doing good things, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't look for the accolade. But if somebody goes, wow, did you see what they did? Let them have that conversation and you just continue on being the example that you need to be. So like the first of creation, the new creation is, um, is initiated by God. And also... Like the first creation, the new creation becomes a reality through the work of Christ. Um, his death on the cross makes possible human reconciliation to God. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to just give you a f like four more passages here, and then, uh, then we'll wrap it up, and we'll just read these really quickly. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 if somebody gets there before me go ahead and just read it all right in romans chapter 5 and we'll read verses 8 through 12 <coughs> he's Go ahead. Reconciled. Yeah, let's go through verse 12. <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
One more. Right. So reconciliation re involves removing um, the, the man's rebellion and sinful en enmity. I, can, I always struggle to say that word. Enmity toward God uh, because, because Christ bore our sin on the cross, he made peace possible. So enmity um, is, is like enemies, only God's not the enemy of human beings, but human beings are enemies of God. So that's that description of enmity is, is a one-sided enemy. Um, we're always resistant uh, by nature. The sinful man is always resistant to what God wants. God is always love in the other direction. And so if we look at 1 Peter 2, um, two more passages real quick. For 1 Peter chapter 2. In verses 24 and 25. Mm -hmm. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. So those of you who were here Wednesday night, what is that a quote from? You, those look familiar? We read in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity or the sins of us all. Um, so Peter is taking that right out of Isaiah 53 and describing how um, what Jesus did on the cross for us and how we can be reconciled to him so in ephesians last verse here ephesians 2 it's a little bit longer passage verses 11 through 22 and then we'll dismiss ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 he says therefore Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father 
by one spirit. Consequently, <clears throat> you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is a passage as well that you can, that you can take to anyone who might say something like this. God is racist. God is saying here there's one race and it's called a human race and Jesus Christ died for them all and loved them all the same. And so it doesn't matter if there's one following Christ today and one that's not. His love for them is the same. The reward isn't. The destiny isn't the same for both of them, but for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, chooses to follow him and chooses to obey what he says, the destiny is, is set. And it's already there. And uh, he continues to make um, he continues to make peace possible. So when there's a when there's a difficult decision, a difficult trial in front of us, peace can be a in the midst of that trial or in the midst of that struggle, because we already know what the end result is going to be. The end result is going to be with the Lord. We can be with Him once uh, once our days are on the earth are done. And so, thank you for your attention. If you have any questions, feel free to stick around and, and um, we can discuss those things. God bless you guys.